Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the ninth word. In discussing the command not to bear false witness against thy neighbor, they'll also talk about if the Bible forbids all lying and what it means to be a truth bearer. We want to thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the ninth word. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us remotely from a Davenant Institute's program in South Carolina. Uh, Alistair, thank you for taking the time off from your work there to join us for the podcast. Brian Motes is sitting here in the background making sure that uh, everything runs smoothly and that we actually capture every last word that we say and that we delete the words that we don't want to put out into public. Uh, We have been going through the 10 words over the last couple of months, and we're coming toward the end. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the ninth word, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And um, this particular commandment raises a question or raises a point about the ten words in general. Classically, when the, the Torah has been analyzed, by, particularly by Christian readers and Christian theologians, it's been split up or classified, the laws have been classified into three different categories. There's ceremonial law that governs the work of the sanctuary, priesthood, laws of purity, laws of sacrifice, and so on. There's judicial law that covers penal law. It covers the organization of a political system in Israel, uh, the, the rules concerning kingship in Deuteronomy 17, and so on. And then there's moral law uh, that deals with uh, individual moral behavior. And the 10 words are often seen as a summary of the moral law. And uh, then you have Uh, judicial applications in other parts of the Pentateuch that are not part of the Ten Commandments. You also have other more specific moral applications of the Ten Words in other parts of the Pentateuch. And you have a specification of the ceremonial law elsewhere. But the the Ten Words are often seen as a summary of the moral law. And I I think we've made this point before, but just to reinforce it, because I think it comes out particularly clearly in in the case of the Ninth Commandment. The Ten Words are not just moral law in the sense that they govern individual moral behavior. They're not just rules about how each individual should behave, each individual Israelite, but there are rules that apply to the community as a whole and apply to institutions, public institutions. We've talked about this in connection with the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, or the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Alistair, you've made the point that this is not just about honoring the particular the particular individuals who are in the positions of father and mother, but you're also honoring an institution. Uh, and uh, renouncing adultery and being sexually faithful is not just a matter of being faithful to the individual, but there's an element of it that's honoring an institution. The Sabbath command is not just about how you organize your individual life, but a lot of the commandment, as we pointed out when we looked at that, is about what a householder or a head of household, how he governs his house. And uh, that's that commandment has to do with the public organization of time in Israel, not just the organization time for an individual. But the, I think this perhaps explicit, most explicitly comes out in the ninth word, 
uh, when when Christian thinks about Christians think about the ninth, ninth word, it's often summarized, reduced to "you shouldn't lie, don't lie." Uh, but the specific the commandment actually has a more specific force to it: "Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor." And witness there is not just uh, witness of speech in general. I think that it does cover that. Well, uh, I think the commandment does expand out to other kinds of speech. But it's talking specifically, specifically about offering witness or bringing witness, bringing testimony in a court. And what's being prohibited specifically is testifying falsely in a court of law to the damage of your neighbor. There are various places in the Torah that describe a false witness as a witness of violence. The witness of violence is doing violence to the reputation of the person he's lying about. He may be intending to take revenge or uh, somehow harm his neighbor uh, using the power of the state to do that. Uh, and so he brings false testimony in the hope that he can convince the court to punish his neighbor since it would be illegal for him to do what he wants done to his neighbor. But if he can manipulate the state into doing it, then he can... He can get the satisfaction of his revenge, but he's a he's a witness of violence. That's the and, and the, again the setting is a court of law. It's not just a it's not just about private conversation. It's about what you speak publicly when you're bringing testimony in a court case. If we were writing the Ten Commandments today and we had the task of composing ten principles that should guide our lives, I think one of the principles that would be foremost in our awareness would be that of abuse of authority and the means by which you can have um, oppressive systems of authority and the way that people will be um, oppressed beneath someone who misuses these um, structures within society. And yet when we read the Ten Commandments, it seems that we don't have anything along those lines. But yet I think if we look more closely at the Ninth Commandment, commandment it will be seen within this commandment especially, that those principles are expressed. In the ninth commandment, we're not just focusing upon the individual act of lying, but the use of the court system as a means of oppressing one's neighbor. And as this principle is expanded later on in Deuteronomy, it's related to not just the courts, but also to the way that you treat your neighbor in making a loan. Um, the way that you might oppress a hired worker or someone who's poor and needy, um, the proper treatment of family members, and the way that you relate to the to the powerless person, and I find that a very helpful uh, reminder that when we think that Scripture doesn't necessarily have the answers to our questions or doesn't address our chief concerns. If we look closer, we'll often find something within it that speaks directly to them. Yeah, and, and a couple of things I want to kind of push on, on your comment there. Uh, what, you're, what you're pointing to, another way to summarize what you're saying is that you can, you can expand the ninth word in the false witness side. You can expand the ninth word in regard to the neighbor. This is about false witness, false testimony in a court, but there are other institutions in which the, the law prohibits abuse of power or manipulation of your neighbor. And there are other laws also that deal with other dimensions of the courtroom situation. There are various laws that deal that uh, address the requirement that judges be above reproach, that judges are refuse bribes, judges are to be 
making a making their judgments not with an eye to the wealthy nor with an eye to the poverty of a, of a litigant, but they're supposed to make decisions based on the justice of the case. So when you press the false witness and look at other passages in the law that deal with courts, and you can see it's it's the witness that's the focus of attention here, but then the whole courtroom situation is addressed and other parties in the courtroom situation are addressed in other parts of the law. And I think that's that points to the way the Bible conceives of the centrality of judicial action in establishing the justice of a political system. The courts shape the way that the society is organized. The law shapes the way that society is organized, and particularly in a, in a place, in a, in a society like Israel, which doesn't seem to have any kind of legislative dimension to the political system. Law would be shaped by uh, God's law, but then by decisions that are made over time. So there's a sort of precedent system, I would assume. So the decisions that are made in the courts are the ones that govern future decisions. If those decisions are distorted by false witness, or if they're distorted by uh, the presence of uh, money through bribes, if they're distorted by judges who favor the poor, even when the poor doesn't have a good case, then you've got right at the center of the society, you've got this uh, untruth that's, uh, that's shaping the way that uh, the society is organized and the way life is led. So the, the, uh, the Torah puts a lot of emphasis, a lot of attention to the to the importance of, of the court as the source of a just society, as a key institution in establishing the justice of society. The other point I wanted to make um, more briefly is about, you mentioned the other, other laws that deal with the, uh, the treatment of the neighbor. It's interesting, I, we've been saying since, for the last several episodes in our series, that the last half of the 10 words deal with offenses against the neighbor, which are attacks on the image of God. The last half of the 10 words, the sixth, Sixth through the tenth commandment uh, have to do with assaults on God's image. They're all, as I, I've suggested, they're all different forms of murder, and they all have to deal with the treatment of the neighbor. But uh, the the ninth commandment is the first time the neighbor makes an appearance in explicitly in the law. There isn't a reference to the neighbor before this. There are a couple in the in the tenth word, but prior to the ninth word, there aren't any references to the neighbor. And it's interesting that the neighbor comes into explicit uh, view. Uh, with this law that has to do with uh, our use of language and our testimony about our neighbor and our use of speech with regard to our neighbor, and particularly in a court of law, that's where the that's where the neighbor comes into view. Uh, and it does seem that that points to some to the importance of speech as the medium of our relation to our neighbor. Physical violence against our neighbor, sexual infidelity with our neighbor's wife, uh, stealing from our neighbor, those are all things that Require a certain certain amount of uh, criminal chutzpah. You have to you know have to go out of your way to do that. Bearing false witness against your neighbor in a more general sense, not in a court, but in a more general sense of you know talking down your neighbor's reputation. That comes rather naturally to us, <laughs> and that's it's in that it's in that zone of concern that the neighbor is mentioned explicitly in the ten words. To the extent that the ninth commandment focuses upon words, um, it also provides us, I think, with a richer concept of what truth means. When we think about truth, it's very easy to think about it purely in terms of factual accuracy. Whereas the act of false witness is, first of all, it's an act. It's an act that is performed towards the neighbor with a particular intent of um, attacking him, doing violence to him in some form. And also it's a relational act that to speak to engage in false witness is to engage in an act of speech that is not keeping truth 
with your neighbor, not just a matter of not telling the truth about one's neighbor, but a breaking of a covenant duty, as it were, to one's neighbor. And in both of those recognitions, I think we are, can arrive at a fuller understanding of a biblical understanding of truth, which is not merely about factual accuracy. It's richer and more complex than that. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, uh, truth is more like a, it, it has a dimension of loyalty or uh, fidelity to your neighbor, not just a matter of uh, not just a matter of getting the getting the getting the facts straight. Uh, I mean, you can you can as as everyone knows, you can use factual data to attack a neighbor. You can say something that is technically thoroughly true, but is still distorted. Uh, that's uh, one sided. That is that's still an, that's still intended to be a an assault. Hinted a couple of times here that the commandment, although specifically about false testimony in the court, kind of broadens out to talk about speech about and toward the neighbor in general. I think that I think that is true. I don't want to lose the specific focus of the courtroom situation, but the textual justification I've, I've pointed to to make that jump from the specific case that's in view in the commandment and the more general concern with speech about the neighbor is the verb that's used to describe the witness. Uh, the verb is anah in the Hebrew. Thou shalt not anah false witness against your neighbor. And uh, the verb there doesn't, it doesn't mean, it doesn't contain any notion of false. Bear is not really a, that's not what the term means by itself. Anah usually means answer. It assumes a prior address to which the false witness is responding. And I think the situation in the specific case is that he's responding to a summons to appear in court to give testimony, and he's answering that summons in a courtroom, and he's speaking falsely in answer to that summons in order to destroy his neighbor. Or you could say it's, a, you know, he's in a cross-examination situation and he answers a specific question, but it's still a courtroom situation. He's answering to a summons. But I think that also that helps us to see something more general, I think, about our use of speech that our speech is always answering speech. Adam is created by God who has spoken, spoken the world into existence and speaks to Adam. And then Adam, Adam's, any, Adam, any words that Adam says back, any actions that Adam does back is a response. It's an answer. Uh, we're born into the world speechless, and we learn to speak only uh, as, an, as answering speech. Uh, and I, uh, that puts it into the, puts in the highlights the relational dimension that were that you mentioned, Alistair, and also I think helps to see show how this um, the specific case of false witness in a court, which is answering a question or answering a summons to testify, is uh, one example of a more general category of answering speech, which includes really all speech. Uh, we're always speaking in response to something, some original word. If we can expand the commandment out, then it covers all the kinds of false and damaging speech that the Bible talks about at great length. I mean, the Proverbs are full of uh, talk about speech. Uh, the book of James warns against the power of the tongue. Paul talks about the, the rotten words that come out of our mouth and uh, exhorts us to speak edifying and nourishing words to our, to our fellow Christians. So um, uh, the, the instinct to see the ninth word is a word about speech in general, I think is right, but we, we, don't want, we want to recognize that without losing the specific focus on the, on the courtroom. I think this also brings us to a much debated question about how 
we understand lying in scripture. Is there ever an occasion where it is appropriate to deceive? We have certain instances that are often brought forward as examples of this. Cases such as Rahab and the men of Jericho or the Hebrew midwives. Other cases where there seems to be an action of deception or a word of deception. And then um, maybe divine approbation declared upon that act. How are we to understand deception against the ninth commandment? Is it always illegitimate? Are there occasions when we can actually deceive? Is that intended as a question for me to address, or is that a rhetorical question for the uh, the listeners to uh, consider themselves? I'll, I'll for us to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I recently uh, I read through uh, Matthew Newkirk's new book. Uh, it's not brand new. It's a, maybe a couple years old, but it's a recent book called Just Deceivers. And the subtitle is An Exploration of the Motif of Deception in the Books of Samuel. And uh, Newkirk uh, looks at, there's 20-some examples that he, uh, that he examines just in the, books, in the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, of uh, various forms of deception. And he's, he defines deception as... Um, Somebody is deceiving if they know if they know what they're communicating, if they know the truth of what they're communicating, and they don't communicate that truth with the intention of uh, leading the the listener to believe, or the listener or viewer can be deception can happen through action too. Uh, the listener or viewer, the observer, to um, believe the thing that the person knows to be false, and then he, he finds about twenty five or so different examples of this in Samuel. And his argument, I think it's, it's pretty persuasive. His argument is that the, the book of Samuel vindicates or treats as legitimate, as good, deceptive actions or deceptive words that are done in order to protect others, in order to, to, to avoid harm. The things that are, the, the kinds of deceptions, there are deceptions that are condemned. And those are deceptions that are like the, the deception of the Amalekite at the beginning of 2 Samuel where he tells David that he killed Saul. And he's doing that in order to get some kind of reward from David because he thinks David wanted Saul killed. Uh, so uh, it's the, the question is what the intention is of the deception. And if the deception is done in order to protect and in order to uh, do good to another rather than to uh, do harm to somebody else, which does happen in Samuel, or to just uh, advance yourself, then those kinds of deceptions are... Uh, are approved of in, in Samuel. It's, that's, that's the most thorough discussion of the issue that I know, um, certainly on those books. And I, I don't know of anything that has covered it as thoroughly in other books of the Bible. It's, it just it, that those deceptions happen too often, and they are uh, either explicitly approved by the biblical writers, or they're treated as, implicitly treated as legitimate tactics. That just happens too often to think that uh, lying itself is lying or deception is always, that the Bible always condemns it. I don't think that's the case. And, and Newkirk makes a case that the Bible simply does not prohibit lying. There's nowhere in the Bible that says thou shalt not lie. And when we think about this in terms of the more explicit words of the ninth commandment, I think it helps us to understand why that is the case, that the commandment is concerned about an act. It's bearing false witness. It's not just... Um, speech in a more abstract sense must be conformed to um, technically be conformed to the truth and on the other hand it's a relational thing it's against one's neighbor when we 
think about truth, we can often think about it very much in terms of accuracy, technically being conformed to the um, character of the actual character of events or real the reality. And what we miss, I think, in that case are certain cases of deception that are genuinely um, illegitimate in terms of scripture. So the idea that we could get out of this by being technically true in our claims, but have an intent to deceive and mislead people with that technically true information, um, communicating it in such a way with the intent that the person would not get the true message. That's illegitimate if, um, or there's no clear distinction between that and the act of direct lying, because in both of those cases, there is an intent to deceive or mislead one's neighbor. On the other hand, there's a recognition that truth as such can be an instrument of violence against one's neighbor. There are times when the truth should not be told. Um, And there are also times when the truth is not owed to someone. We've talked about the sixth commandment and situations of just war. Um, We can think about similar principles of um, just lying, where in terms of a covenant of communication that we have with someone else, that there is a duty not to give them the truth because that would be breaching our duty of love to neighbor, or it would be betraying a confidence, or it would be doing something else that would be an act of violence against our neighbor. And as we foreground that significant um, dimension of the act of violence against one's neighbor, I think it gives us a clearer um, sense of what bearing false witness means and how it might differ from just technic- the technical notion of lying that many people operate in terms of. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.